everyone. Before I introduce my guest, he's going to help me tell a story. It's very relevant to today's topic of sociolinguistic competence. Here we go. Lana was selling her house. She interviewed several potential realtors, including a non-native English speaker. Listen to their conversation and you decide if he got the job. This is really nice house. It's ultimate nice. I can do a good job to sell it. Uh, well, as we said before, we're going to talk with other realtors too. Once we decide, we'll let you know. I want you to know I can do best job. Let me list it. Uh, well, we really haven't decided on a realtor yet, but we'll let you know. I want you to choose me. Promise me. I will do the best job. List it with a realtor. Let me sell it. Promise me. I do the best job. Uh, well, I'm not sure what we'll do. We'll get back to you. Uh, get back? Will you tell me your answer? Will you telephone me? Uh, okay, we'll try to call your office tomorrow if that's okay. Oh, yes. Sorry. That's fine. So let me ask you. What's your impression of this realtor? I'm guessing you'd say he's pushy. So where did he go wrong? His English grammar was decent and we can overlook him saying that instead of that. But his underlying problem goes a whole lot deeper. It's the way he uses imperatives like promise me. Um, and then he insists he can do the job and doesn't understand that Lana's real underlying message was, don't call me, I'll call you. Bottom line, the realtor lacked sociolinguistic competence. To talk about this essential skill in language learning, let me now introduce our guest, David Broersma. He has a PhD in sociolinguistics and worked in higher education in Eastern Europe for 17 years. He's trained language learning coaches worldwide and currently teaches at Lee University. Welcome, David. It's a pleasure to be here with you. David, before you walk us through some practical ways to learn sociolinguistic competence, I'm really curious about this unusual title of an article you published. It's called, You're So White, So Fat, So Hairy. What was that all about? Yeah, this was the title of a, an article that I wrote, and it was about social linguistics. But this example came from an experience that my wife's friend had when she was living in Thailand. And uh, her friend was from South Africa, was a white South African. and um, and her Thai friend uh, came up to her one day and she had a short sleeve shirt on and started rubbing her arm and said, you're so white and so fat and so hairy. And um, I don't know about the hairy part of it. I think she was just surprised about that. But the white and the fat part of it were both compliments from her. She was actually... Uh, you know, making a compliment to this person. But as Westerners, we tend to be kind of, oh, well, at least in the past, we were kind of obsessive about being thin and about being tan. <laughs> uh, and we didn't want to be seen as white. Uh, but 
uh, for this person, that was really a compliment to say that she was light skinned and that she was fat. Uh, you know, being fat meant that you are a successful person. You have enough money to eat well. It wasn't a negative thing. But of course, for the woman who was hearing it, it was hard to feel that that was a compliment. Well, that's a great example to start us off with. What exactly are we talking about when we refer to sociolinguistic competence? Well, when we talk about social linguistic competence, we're talking about kind of the practical side of social linguistics. And it's really the way that people can uh, be appropriate in the language that they use when they're speaking with others, when there are changes in the context, when they have different roles, when there are different goals involved, uh, and when people have different status, for example, in the conversation. So figuring out how to adjust to all of these features in the context and be appropriate at that point. So I think the operative word here is appropriate, right? Exactly. So trying to uh, use the right words at the right time to convey the right meaning, given that particular social context. You know, if we go back to the example of the realtor, uh, his response to Lana when she was kind of hedging and saying, oh, we'll get back to you, we don't know, kind of things, uh, his response was to push harder. Uh, but if he were being more appropriate for the culture that Lana was from, he would have probably said something like, well, it's really great to meet you and I'd love to work with you. Here's my business card. Uh, you know, uh, if I can be of any help to you, let me know or something like that. He would immediately be aware that what she was saying was sort of a probably not answer. Uh, and he would do whatever he could to kind of encourage her to continue considering him without being too pushy. But good grammar is important, right? Yes. Uh, and I do really want to emphasize this in this podcast because we're going to be speaking about things that are kind of extra to the formal linguistic competence that uh, people need in a language. And it really is important for us to know basic grammar and to know vocabulary and pronunciation and these sort of nuts and bolts of a language because you really don't have anything to work with if you don't have that. Uh, but if that's all we do, if we stick there with just the basics and the sort of nuts and bolts, uh, we can actually end up in trouble. And in fact, the better we are at doing the grammatical kinds of things and getting the vocabulary correct, the more people are going to have expectations that we're also going to do the social linguistic kinds of things correctly. And, you know, if you make a mistake in grammar, people might think, oh, he's just kind of a not very intelligent foreigner or something like that. Um, and uh, you know, they may kind of write you off a little bit as not being very smart. But if you make a mistake with social linguistic competence, they're much more likely to uh, make an assumption about you, about your character, uh, to make value judgments about you. You are rude or pushy or uh, unkind. And so it can have a really negative impact on your ability to you know, really function in that situation and be able to have influence. So what you're saying is that sociolinguistic errors can result in wrong assumptions about you, the learner, but can't it work both ways where you make wrong assumptions about the host culture? Tell us about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is really an important aspect of social linguistic competence is the way that we read what's happening around us as well. Um, and what it means when people do certain kinds of uh, language related things around us. Uh, it's very easy when you're living in, a, in another culture where you're surrounded by another language uh, to misread what the cues are, what people are really trying to communicate and what their intentions are. And you know, one of the ways that you can tell if you're doing this is if you're coming to conclusions that are kind of absolute about the entire culture. You know, like when you say, uh, everybody in this culture just lies all the time. If, if that is a response that you're having to the culture, uh, I want to tell you that what you have is a social linguistic problem uh, because you're missing something that is uh, causing you to interpret something, you know, a whole culture as having a serious character flaw. Now, it's always possible in any culture with human beings in it that some people lie some of the time. Uh, but if you feel like everybody lies all the time, then you probably are making assumptions about something where you're missing a piece of information. And that's a good point to start drilling down a little bit to find out uh, if there are some things that you're missing. Just saying everybody all the time. Right. It, it is really easy to fall into that kind of stereotype. I know that we've all been there. I used to hear embassy friends accuse Panamanians of being dishonest since they might tell you what you want to hear or maybe accept an invitation when they really don't actually plan to come. They didn't realize that Panamanians were actually trying to just be polite. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that they didn't reject you immediately out of hand or say, no, I'm not going to do that uh, was actually probably a sign that they were showing respect towards you and that they valued the relationship with you. Now, in many cultures, this is sort of the way people respond to invitations uh, if they really can't or uh, don't think they want to uh, participate in whatever they're being invited to is that they will initially say that they will come, but then they don't end up coming. And uh, in some cultures, they just they just do it that way. I mean, and so you never assume that somebody is coming until you actually see the whites of their eyes. But in some cultures, there are other signals that make it clear to somebody who's an insider in that culture that even though they're saying yes, they really don't intend to come. Uh, so it may be in the way that they raise their eyebrows, or it could be in the um, you know, the, the way they frame the response, that it's clear that they're being respectful to you by not rejecting your proposal, but they really don't intend to follow through. In some other cultures, uh, there is an understanding that when you ask somebody to do something, the first time they will say yes, but you're supposed to cycle back and ask them again before the event to to sort of confirm that you really are inviting them and that they really are going to come. And if you've come back and kind of confirmed it, then they will come. But if you only come once, they will assume that you invited them to be polite and that you didn't really intend to invite them in reality. You know, I'm sort of embarrassed to say this, but as long as we lived in Chile, a little over six years, we never figured out what the cues were that 
a person really wasn't going to come or they really were going to come. And so our really good friend, our compadre, the, the, the parents of our godson, they visited us in, in the U.S. here in our home. And so we said, Andres, Stella, we never figured this out. What are the cues that tell you when a person is really going to come? And so they went through the list of three things. I won't go into all three things, but it was you had to have all three things before you actually really did plan on them coming. And she said the, the last phone call could be to say yes, could be maybe three hours before the actual invitation. And so she said, Mary Lynn, I never go to the grocery to get the stuff for the dinner until three hours maybe before they're actually going to come. So it's like, oh, okay, now we get it. So we're talking about invitations and that's a category of a speech act. So could you explain what a speech act is? Um, since I think it's an important concept to understand within sociolinguistic competence. Well, uh, speech acts are an important part of understanding sociolinguistic competence. But basically, a speech act is just anything that we use language to accomplish, anything we do with our language. This could be something like an apology or an invitation that we were just talking about, or even a refusal or an acceptance of an invitation. It could be a compliment. These kinds of things that we do with with language are speech acts. And they can even be things like promising someone something or uh, you know, declaring something. All, all of these are examples of speech acts. And sometimes speech acts are quite formulaic. We do the same things over and over again. You know, for example, the, the speech act of greeting would be hi, how are you, you know, is kind of a fairly standard way of doing that. Now, there are lots of different ways we can respond to that, but usually we have kind of our favorites and we do it over and over again. And certain uh, kinds of responses seem a little more formal and other responses seem a little more informal. And so when we're working on speech acts, we can kind of uh, tailor them to fit better with certain situations. Uh, one resource that I think is a great resource is the Carla website. Uh, it's a great place to start off. They've done research on a bunch of English speech acts. Complaints, greetings, invitations, refusals, requests are on their website. And they give you an example of something that you could use uh, to uh, kind of look at these more carefully. And they, they vary them for different kinds of situations, whether the situation is more formal or informal, uh, what type of relationship exists between the people who are speaking and so on. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that Carla webpage. It is really great. I'll mention that website again at the end of the episode so you won't miss it. If you click on their bibliography link, you'll see like 25 different speech acts listed there. I thought curses was an interesting category. So I clicked around and saw that in Turkish, you could curse someone by saying, may you be shot with greasy bullets. I guess that's better than the H word, but it certainly sounds rather ominous. And if I could just add another example here, David from Spanish, 
Here's something I just recently learned about how to politely make requests. I was at my Mexican friend's home a while back, and I heard her ask the Latina woman who was cleaning if she would make sure she dusted something upstairs. She prefaced their request with, no seas malita. If you translate that, literally, it means don't be a little bad. Honestly, it sounded a bit rude to my English ears and stuck out to me since my friend is actually a super polite woman. But whatever, there was a power difference there and she was telling the lady what to do as her boss, so I just wrote it off. Then a couple of weeks later, we were leaving and I was following her into the garage. She turns around and says in Spanish, Turn on the alarm, no seas malita. There was that phrase again. Actually, I bristled a bit since I was her friend and not the cleaning lady. But I guess I could have asked her, but good old Google said that in Mexican Spanish, it's actually a very polite way to preface any request and it's not dependent on social class. So it was appropriate for her to say it to the cleaning lady as well as to me as her friend. So go on, David. Yeah. So now you know, and you can use that phrase uh, effectively and appropriately in a situation. Instead of basing your judgment about that phrase on your sort of literal reading of what it would mean, you're basing it on how it fits within a social linguistic context. And that makes all the difference. When we're trying to accomplish different kinds of speech acts, one of the ways that we can tell whether we're succeeding or failing is by seeing the reaction of those that we're uh, responding to, reading their facial expressions and their reactions. So you sense that something's wrong. Maybe they laugh at a point where you didn't think you were saying something funny, or uh, they look surprised at what you said. And that can kind of put you on the path of discovery. So Let me jump in and mention here another resource that you can download for free. I know you and I talked about that. Um, It's an old classic ESL resource called Speaking Naturally. And it shows how certain speech acts, for example, invitations are performed in English. And uh, could you say anything more about that resource? Yeah, Speaking Naturally is a book that's been around for decades already. I think it's a wonderful example of the kind of thing that it would be useful to do on your own when you're learning a second language with people who are kind of language informants for you, people that you're getting language information, whether it's a tutor or a conversation partner or someone else that is helping you, uh, because it helps to give you a structure for figuring out what kinds of things you want to ask about or the kinds of things you need to pay attention to in the context that might help you to uh, come up with better answers to how to be appropriate. And the thing is, it's all done for English uh, examples in this book because it's an ESL textbook. So you can kind of see how it works in the reverse and then apply it to a situation where you're learning. So you're saying it's very helpful to think through how a speech act works in your own language, and then you can see the components to look for. Are there other intentional ways to learn? I mean, can't we just learn these things by immersion, just pick them up the longer we're in the country? Yeah, a lot of people uh, have this impression about language learning in general, that 
the things that you need to focus on are the nuts and bolts, the grammar, and that you're going to just sort of automatically pick up the other things by being exposed to the culture and the language. And certainly, occasionally you do pick up some things, like you do notice some things, but the experience of most people who have lived in other cultures for extended periods of time is that sometimes years later, they're finding out that something they've been doing is completely wrong and they're misunderstanding and miscommunicating about something. We had the example of the realtor earlier who had been in the U.S. for five years at the time when he had that conversation with Lana, but he still hadn't picked up on some of the social linguistic things he was doing that were hindering him actually from getting jobs and listings for his real real estate company. Uh, so it, it really doesn't just automatically happen, at least for most people. And so, uh, you know, often this kind of material, this kind of information is not included in the, the curriculum of programs that are teaching lang other languages, just because they're not as aware of the need for it. And so I think it's really important for individual learners to take the initiative and try to learn about this kind of a thing. And you can really prioritize it based on the kinds of things that you need to do right now. Uh, so figure out what is it that I need to be able to do on a daily basis or on a regular basis. And those are the things that I'm going to work on first and try to figure out how to do that appropriately. So tell us how making a chart can be useful. Well, uh, I think it's useful to have some framework to start with so that you are asking the right kinds of questions and you're getting data, getting information. For example, how to deal with invitations. Well, you might uh, have like different parts of that broken up for different levels of formality. If it's, uh, you know, like if you're re interacting with somebody who is higher status than yourself or somebody who's, for example, younger than yourself, would that alter what you would be doing? You might uh, also want to know with invitations, does it matter what the weight of the invitation is? Like there's a big difference between asking somebody if they want to go out and have a cup of coffee and asking somebody if they will be a bridesmaid in your wedding. If the invitation is more serious, it might require a different kind of frame in terms of language for how you would express it. Think of like different contexts where this might be used, this kind of language, and then ask questions that are very pointed towards those things. I think it can be helpful to kind of fill in a chart that gives you a range of different ways you can respond to different situations. That brings to mind that phrase, I request the honor of your presence. <laughs> I made a chart once on condolences in Spanish since I often felt awkward and really wasn't sure I was saying the right thing. And it's cool the stuff that you can find out by doing a chart. Like for example, when was it okay to say something just in a text and when you really needed to say it in a phone call or face to face. So what else can work to help us learn? Well, we should point out that we spend our whole lives learning this. <laughs> we don't start knowing social linguistic competence. As children, you know, we'll run out into the middle of the room and talk about bodily functions without any compunction. But 
we have to learn, okay, in certain circumstances, that's not appropriate. If we're trying to learn a second language and we're already an adult, so we have the kind of cognitive equipment to do this, then we need to train ourselves to be better observers about what's going on around us. And this can be tricky when we're trying to learn a second language because we're focusing so much on meaning and trying to understand what we're hearing that we don't have any resources left over to look at what's going on around us. And uh, so I think that this is something that we have to sort of prioritize at times when we're not actually engaged ourselves in conversation, but we're observing how other people do conversation so that we have an opportunity to see, you know, how do they stand in relation to each other? Do they touch each other at all? Do they, uh, you know, pat each other on the back or shake their hands? And, you know, how does speech in, uh, influenced by the gender of, or the age of the speakers? You know, in some languages, if somebody is 15 minutes older than you, you have to use a whole different set of endings on the verbs. So just kind of looking for things that are happening and trying to make sense out of how you function in that situation. Uh, I think it's a great idea to keep a journal or at least keep notes of this kind of a thing so that you can go back and review it later and remind yourself because it's very easy to be overwhelmed with data and not remember what you've observed. I think TV series are really great for observation too. I know when we were in language school in Costa Rica, we were living with a Costa Rican family and every night we would watch the soap opera that was named Soledad. And we learned a ton every night by watching that soap opera. And I know my husband and I have gotten into watching these South Korean K-dramas, they're called, on Netflix. Binge warning, guys. So interesting to observe cultural norms. Apologies done by prostrating yourself. Comforting done by these pretty hard, slow pats on the back. Declarations of love while standing what, for Americans, would be far apart. Of course, since we're depending on the subtitles, we miss the actual Korean language that accompanies these actions, which is really what we're focusing on here. The honorifics used would be fascinating since Korean has a whole system of endings that recognizes the hierarchical social status of the person you're addressing in relationship to yourself. And forgetting them or screwing them up would not be good. Yeah, it, it is important to get it right. And, uh, you know, you can learn a lot also, even just by reading things in the second language. I remember reading once with uh, a tutor who was a fanatic of Anton Chekhov, uh, a short story where in the short story, you have a, uh, a woman who's having an affair with an artist. And the, the way that you know in the story automatically that the affair is over is when he switches from the informal pronoun with her to the formal pronoun. And then, you know, the affair has just ended and there's no, I mean, nothing is said, you know, it's not like saying I'm breaking up with you, but you know that he just broke up with her. Uh, and um, so, yeah, it's kind of all done with a very subtle shift. That informal formal dynamic exists in so many languages and is, so dependent on keen observation. There just aren't simple black and white textbook rules. The whole formal and informal thing is a place where Americans tend to make egregious mistakes uh, because we tend to be very informal as a culture and we value informality. 
Uh, and so it's kind of our default position is to be informal. But we don't realize that even if we're fairly close to someone, it may be that because of the context and other things about that culture, that it's not appropriate for us to use the informal option, like in a pronoun or something with them, unless they have somehow given us permission to do it. It can be a really painful mistake if we're using the wrong version in the wrong situation. Talking about reading, I just finished Colson Whitehead's Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Nickel Boys. And I was struck with how the Black teenagers, without consequence, could easily address each other with the N-word. But then how that compared with the language they used with the authorities at the reform school where they were. David, what about just outright asking somebody? And if so, whom do you ask about these kinds of things? The best way to get access to the appropriate use of language, I think, is by cultivating relationships with insiders in the culture and then interviewing them about different things. And these can be different people. They can just be close friends. They could be tutors. They could be people who are you're paying to be conversation partners with you. But one thing you want to keep in mind is that, first of all, um, these people should be people who are actually insiders. <laughs> they may speak the language well, but they may actually be outsiders to the culture itself. When we lived in Eastern Europe, there were people who were in the city we were living in who were actually from way out in another part of the country, and they were not always sociolinguistically appropriate for the city we lived in. Uh, and so they wouldn't have been the best choice of somebody to ask these questions to because the target audience for our speech was really people who were kind of insiders in that city. Uh, and so we, you have to be careful about like who you choose. That's one factor to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is that some people are very unself-aware about what they're doing. Uh, and so they, they may actually be fairly appropriate, but they have never thought about what they're doing to be appropriate. And so they come up with really off the wall <laughs> descriptions of why you would do a certain thing or how you would do something uh, in the situation. So uh, I think it takes some time and effort to identify people who really are able to give you good answers about how to do something within the culture. Uh, third point I would make is that just like in any kind of research, it's really important to triangulate your data. You know, you need to find other people who can confirm that what you've discovered from somebody is actually the way that it works in that culture. You may have had this experience before. I know I have when you're taking one of these personality tests and you're supposed to choose one thing or another. And you think, well, if I was in this situation, you know, this context, I would be this. If I was in this situation, I would do that. You know, and you can't decide because you have sort of a picture in your mind of a situation. And when you ask these kinds of questions, it's possible for a responder to have a sort of picture in their mind of a scenario where you might use that kind of language, but it's different from the scenario that you have in your mind. And so the information they're giving you isn't necessarily perfect. And so that's why it's so important to talk with others about it and try to confirm that the way you're understanding things is actually the right way to understand them and to continue to monitor as you use things to see 
whether you are actually doing it in a way that is appropriate, like in, in terms of the reactions uh, of others. In my years overseas, I had a, a lot of different people that I would ask these kinds of questions to. I had people who were working on the same team with me in the university where I worked. I had people in my church. I had people in other spheres who would be happy to help me answer questions. And that way I could get a range of answers about something that would help me to know that I was on the right track. I like too the fact that with the people that you felt close to, you could ask their honest opinion of Americans or American ministry workers. Sometimes it was really eye-opening <laughs> to, to find out what they thought of us. Some people made the comment that Americans just don't really take the time to understand the people that they're talking to. Yeah. Uh, sadly, that is often the case. It's easy not to take the time to do this. It's hard work to develop social linguistic competence. I will not lie. It is really hard work. For that sociocultural information, you must have relied on your tutors as well. Didn't you work with tutors the whole time you were in the country? Yeah, I did, actually. And one of my best friends was the guy who started out as my tutor. And we kept meeting the entire time that I lived there for 17 years. We met at least once a week. And uh, he was a tremendous help to me. But after about seven years, we stopped having it be a like an official tutoring uh, thing because we were just such good friends that we were just getting together as friends. But it was still about language, too. But at one point, I decided to ask him about apologies. And um, you know, I knew a number of different ways to apologize, but I wasn't clear about like which one would be the ideal one in which situation. And there was one form that was more of a forgive me that I felt was like a little more serious. And there was another form that was where you used the word for I'm sorry as a verb rather than as an infinitive uh, in the language. And so I was just asking him about this. And it turned out that when I used the verb form of this uh, a way to express I'm sorry, it came across as though I were kind of like the administration of an organization saying they were sorry, but not really meaning it. And it was kind of a, the way official people would say they're sorry. And it didn't have that sort of warmth or personal feeling that you would have from an individual who is genuinely sorry about something. Uh, and that was that was a revelation to me because I had no idea. And I had been using that form, you know, not all the time, but fairly often without realizing that it was giving off a different kind of tone. Uh, and so it's, it's really helpful to get that kind of feedback from people. And then you said that you also ask another tutor who was a woman. Yes, exactly. Uh, and because I wanted to know uh, if, if there would be a difference, if they would perceive it differently. And actually, there were some different perspectives in you know, how you would go about doing it. And uh, to tell you the truth, there were some aspects of it that are kind of individually based, right? I mean, that you can make a decision about. You can do it one way or another way, and so you can make a choice. But it was helpful to get that kind of extra perspective so that I could see uh, whether, you know, it was, it was working or not. 
Talk to us now, if you would, about role play, since that's something else that you can do with a tutor or language helper. Yeah, and I mean, I think role plays can be a really effective way to work on speech acts and uh, different kinds of functions that we've been talking about. Uh, so you set up kind of a situation, a little uh, scenario that you're going to enact. Maybe it's a negotiation of some something. It could be, you know, if you're a novice learner, just trying to buy something in the market, something as simple as that. Uh, but, you know, for advanced learners, it might be something like, you know, negotiating a repair for your washing machine or something that's important fairly early on for most people is figuring out how you get a haircut, you know, like what kinds of things do you need to say in order to get a haircut and end up walking out looking like the person you wanted to look like. Uh, and so you come up with some kind of a scenario and think through, and you can work this through with a tutor or some kind of language helper and figure out what is some of the language that would be needed for this kind of interaction? What, what would be a potential dialogue for this kind of a situation? And then you practice doing it. And one thing that can be really helpful is just to record yourself doing that, then listen to that recording with your tutor or language helper and find out how did it go? Uh, where were the places where things broke down a little bit or it wasn't clear what I was saying? You know, where was the tutor kind of filling in because I wasn't doing it correctly? And then you can do it again and you can recycle this as many times as you need to until, you know, you think you're really ready to do it or your tutor says, gives you the thumbs up. Uh, and then you can go out and do it in real life, you know, use it in a real life situation and see how it goes. You mentioned earlier formulate kind of pat phrases that are used for different situations. Can you talk to us about how beneficial it is to just memorize those? Yeah, uh, I mean, actually, a great deal of what we say on a regular basis every day is very formulaic. Uh, you know, as when we're making small talk, when we're interacting with people in sort of greetings and comings and goings, and uh, when we answer certain kinds of questions, a lot of it is just very, uh, it's a formula. I mean, we just repeat the same things, very repetitive over and over again. And uh, so those kinds of things can be learned and memorized fairly easily and then recycled frequently. Um, as we get a little bit more sophisticated, then we can figure out if we start with something that's a little more formulaic and then the conversation takes a new turn, you know, we can stay with it when it turns, but we can get a tremendous amount of mileage using expressions that are used every day. You mentioned birthday greetings, for example. In the culture that I lived in, this was a big thing when it was somebody's birthday, you needed to wish them, you know, all kinds of good things, right? So you would wish them health and long life and happiness and prosperity. And, you know, you'd go through this whole list of things, but, and it sounds really complicated and it's a little complicated for a new learner, but actually you could memorize this formula very, fairly easily and it would work over and over and over again, you know, because people have birthdays at least once a year, you know, so uh, you would know the right thing to say in that particular situation then. Uh, and as again, as you get more sophisticated, you can elaborate on it, you can make it a little more creative, but you're starting with something that's going to work no matter what kind of in any situation. Well, this is a funny formula in English that I've noticed. 
it's something really simple, but it's what you say when a woman compliments another woman on her shoes. It goes something like this. Woman number one, I really like your shoes. Woman two, they're really comfortable, which I think is kind of a dumb answer, but that's what you say. They're really comfortable. Or another answer could be to tell where you purchased them. But the latter is more often used if she got them on sale. It sort of points to an underlying value of pride over getting good deals. But the actual cost, interestingly enough, is almost never mentioned. And then here's another simple one. What do you say to a child, especially when you see them for the first time after Christmas? Well, you say, what did Santa bring you? In comparison, in Latin America, that question would be, what did the Nino bring you? The Nino meaning baby Jesus. We're almost done here, David. So could you wrap up for us? Give us your parting shot. To learn social linguistic competence, really, it's about having character. <laughs> it's about having a, the humility to recognize that you have a lot to learn. And you can learn from anybody. And that kind of learner posture makes it possible to get underneath communication patterns that seem mystifying to us or frustrating to us, or even that might anger us, because we're coming with a perspective of, I don't understand, instead of an attitude of, I understand everything and you're just wrong. <laughs> uh, and if we come with that sort of learning posture, actually, this is helpful in any kind of relationship, not just cross-cultural ones. But uh, we're able to then really get at the essence of things and learn from people. And we can be appropriate and affirming and life-giving to others because we are responding to the real needs in their lives. And we are really trying to understand them rather than just being self-centered and focused only on how it affects us. There are so many ways that in the process of language learning, we can put ourselves in this kind of learner posture and create really meaningful relationships with people that are based on kindness and solidarity, connection, respect, you know, deference. If we can do this and be really other-centered about the way that we go about trying to understand how to communicate effectively to others, I think we will have a, a much more positive impact on those around us. Thank you, David. Those are great words to close on, being affirming and life-giving. But you well know that we're expecting your super-duper language blooper. <laughs> okay, well, uh, this blooper is in the category of not depending too much on translators to get your work done for you. I was doing some teaching uh, at one point and I had somebody translating for me and they were not a terribly experienced translator, but I, at some, one point in the story, I was saying that uh, the people in this one location were dependent on government aid. Uh, and I was making some kind of point about that, but my translator said, that the government gave these people AIDS. Uh, and, and fortunately, I understood the language well enough to be able to say, no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to say. Uh, but it made me realize that so often people use a translator without knowing what they're actually saying. 
and you know they can say anything and it could be really crazy so anyway that's my my blooper that's really great david i would like to have seen you at that point thanks so much david for being on the show today yeah it was a great pleasure thank you a special shout out to Lana Dickerson at Wheaton's Institute for Cross-Cultural Training for lending us her realtor story. And that great website again is carla.umn.edu forward slash speech acts altogether. I'm Marilyn Kinberg and thanks so much for joining us on Language on Purpose. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. If you connected with the podcast, be so good to leave us a nice review. And on our webpage, languageonpurpose.org, if you complete the very short survey, I can better serve you. Subscribe anywhere you listen and you won't miss an episode. See you next time.